0: Yep. That's I don't true. mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um... Well, I'll just... For my own sake. Um... Yeah. So... This feels... This feels the sick. moment you decide. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, uh, I no, don't know what yeah. I'm doing. <laughs> always edit. <laughs> so this feels terribly awkward, but, uh... All right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, we're calling this the History of Christian... No, wait. A History of Christian Theology. Um, yes. and, uh... I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it. So we'll see. So A History of Christian Theology, Um, I'm Chad Kim. We have uh, Trevor Adams. And Tom Velasco. All right. Grace and peace to you from A History of Christian Theology. In today's conversation, we welcome back Trevor Adams, as well as a friend of mine who graduated from Westminster Christian Academy and Princeton Theological Seminary as I did, Ben Horseman. Today's theologian is a friend and companion of John the Evangelist, Papias. Curiously, no full writings from Papias exist any longer, but only what has been passed down through other authors, primarily Eusebius of Caesarea and Irenaeus of Lyon, who we will get to in a few weeks. The primary import of these fragments of Papias are the role they play in demonstrating what an early follower of John believed about eschatology, which which is the study of last things and what Papias says about the gospel accounts. Papius himself independently looks into some claims made in the gospel and tries to verify them as best he can. Additionally, Papius seems to believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth that eventually becomes part of the conversation about the tribulation and rapture from later dispensational Christianity, a 20th century movement. As these are short fragments, it should be no surprise this episode will be on the shorter side, but we will have another, longer conversation on the Epistle to Diagonetus next week with Ben Horseman as well. Following Diagonetus, we will be recording an episode on Shepherd of Hermas, and then move into Justin Martyr's first apology. Please leave us a note, let us know, know who is listening, and thanks for all your support. Alright, so let's start with Papias then. Uh, so the Papias fragments, as Tom rightly stated, what is distinct about Papius is actually, and what is used most frequently, is his views uh, of the millennium and what in theology we call eschatology, which is basically in times, what is happening at the end, the study of the end. Uh, so we will, let's look at Papias. Um, Tom, do you want to say a little something about what you picked up on from, from Papius?
1: Yeah, if you don't mind, before I do that, just because I know our our readers probably won't be familiar with this distinction, but throughout church history, there have developed more or less three different views on what people refer to as the millennium. Uh, Those three different views are the premillennial view, the amillennial view, and the postmillennial view. And uh, the premillennial view is this, that Jesus will return, and after he returns, he will set up a kingdom on this earth that will... Uh, last for a thousand years and he will literally reign as king for a thousand years. That's premillennialism. Postmillennialism is kind of the opposite of that and that is that, the or I shouldn't say opposite, the mirror of that view where the church is going to expand and grow, uh, fill the earth and essentially create a millennial kingdom on the earth that will last a thousand years and at the end of that thousand years Jesus will return. The third view Amillennialism is the view that any passage of scripture that is referencing the millennium, and I should add, the notion of the millennium uh, comes from Revelation chapter is it 21? 21, Twenty one, I believe, that references a time when Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years. So the Amillennialist says any passage that Christians have used to, to refer to the millennium is actually uh, meant to be interpreted allegorically or something along those lines, Uh, And it literally, there is no true millennium, but the millennium of the Bible is referencing the Christian era or the church age, so to speak. So those are the three uh, views that have been adopted historically. I think throughout most of church history, amillennialism is kind of the dominant view. Currently amongst evangelicals, premillennialism, a certain kind of premillennialism has dominated, especially in the Southern Baptist Convention uh, and amongst charismatics. Uh, but I would still say people tend to think it's the dominant view today. And, and I think if you were to take all Christians, uh, it would not be the dominant view. Just amongst kind of the most maybe fundamentalist and, and and a certain conservative element of evangelicals. Papias is often referred to because he was an early church father who certain of the historians think was acquainted with the Apostles. Was, he's referred to as a friend of John, and he is a clear premillennialist, or as Eusebius would refer to him as chiliast. Uh, that is, he believed in a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. There are a few references here in the fragments uh, to that, so I'll just kind of read one here. It says here, The same person, speaking of Papias, has set down things coming to him from unwritten tradition amongst these some strange parables and instructions from the Savior, and amongst other things of a more fabulous nature. Amongst these, he says that there will be a millennium after the resurrection of the dead when the personal reign of Christ will be established on the earth. This is a guy that premillennials will clearly look back to as a kind of support to say that their view is grounded in the earliest of church traditions. So I think that's that's one reason why I think he's of some interest and significance.
0: In that section where Eusebius uh, mentions him— as a as a premillennialist and literally interpreting that millennium, uh, well, I'm looking at an introduction actually, but he calls him a man of exceedingly small intelligence. He does. Where's that? <laughs> it's a quote from my introduction, actually, um, from from Ecclesiastical Histories, Book Three, from from Eusebius. Don't take that as Chad obliquely criticizing you.
1: That's just <laughs> if you're out there and you're a you're a premillennialist, don't be offended <laughs> by that. It's, those are Eusebius' words. <laughs> like, they can be my words, too. <laughs> so, so Ben's just laid his cards on the table, I guess. By the way, Chad, you should introduce Ben to our
0: listeners. Oh, right. yeah. My- Come on, Chad. <laughs> yeah, Chad. I'm a terrible host. Well, first I should say, welcome back, Trevor, I think. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. Back to the conversation. Uh, and also, yeah, so I invited my friend Ben here. He graduated from Princeton Seminary as I did. Uh, actually, we went to the same high school yeah. as well here at Westminster Christian Academy. They're full of premillennialists. <laughs> yeah, Westminster is full of <laughs> premillennialists. This is true. Is Princeton? <laughs>
2: I, I, would, I would say Princeton's probably a pretty big amillennialist uh, kind of place. So I fit right in, right in there.
0: Yeah. So, Trevor, you got a thought on the uh, millennium there? Are you going to side with Eusebius here, the man of exceedingly small intelligence? Or calling <laughs> Papias a man of exceedingly small intelligence? or uh... hey, before,
1: before he answers that, can I make my uh, amendation? uh It is actually Revelation 20 that speaks of the thousand-year reign, not Revelation 21. So I got that wrong. I've, I've never... Known why people
3: were really particular about it? To be perfectly honest, I grew up in a church that was hardcore premillennialist, but I never really—I I guess I never cared either way. To be honest, that, this is eschatology is one of those theology subjects that I've always felt like, ah, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever ends up being true, that'll be interesting. Like, to be perfectly honest. It doesn't engage the philosopher part of me as much. So, <laughs>
2: yeah. Have you thought about reading, like, the Timberlake, hey, Jerry Jenkins, Left Behind books and seeing if that engages the, the philosopher? <laughs> you I know, mean, it's yeah. funny you
1: say that. It's funny you say that because I had a Nick, Nicolas Cage movie night. <laughs> Wherein we watched Left Behind starring Nicolas Cage. And, audience, it is as good as you could imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I believe well, Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 2%. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
0: Well, and, you know, it is interesting. So, so Trevor brings up this question of how important is it to the Christian community? So what we're demonstrating is that there was at least some conversation in the early church fathers as they're reading John and the revelation of John. What did he mean? Does he mean a literal 1,000 years? Does he mean an allegorical 1,000 years? So Eusebius, a a Greek writer, writing in Greek, is going to probably shade a little bit more allegorical. That doesn't surprise me. We talked a little bit about Barnabas um, and his allegorical interpretation. So he's going to, you know, he may be speaking a little lightly of Papias. Nevertheless, it was an issue worth conversing about. Whether or not it was literal or allegorical. And I don't know if we have other thoughts. Like, basically, a lot of these views, calling them amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, a lot of this stuff is a later theological um, reading of what's going on in, in Revelation. You know, what we're looking at is to what degree these early writers were aware of these distinctions, which I would say that they probably wouldn't, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be known as a millennial pre-millennial or post-millennial for sure. But, but they are still considering the topic at least somewhat. Yeah. Well, for
3: them, I mean, to us, it's like we put it in a category and we talk about it as its own thing, eschatology. Yeah. But for them, I'm sure this was coming down to things like just, Hey, this is one of John's writings how serious do we take this writing, and in what way do we take this writing? So, yeah, I mean, definitely there's some deeper things at issue for the early church since, you know, the Bible hasn't been formed yet, and uh, Scripture hasn't probably been completely decided yet either. So
1: Well, the fact that they don't use that term is evidenced by the fact that everybody calls Papias Achilleist rather than a premillennialist. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be the term that they used in the first few centuries for people who believed in a literal millennium. I have a lot of thoughts on this that I, I feel like we could have a, a robust conversation on it, but I want to pull back a little bit just because I know in a couple of weeks we're going to be reading Justin Martyr, and he has a way, way more. He, he's fleshed this out way more than Papias has. I mean, and, and he talks about when, when we read Justin Martyr, you're going to see how the debate kind of goes back and forth and kind of his perspective on it's really interesting. So I, can, I myself don't want to delve too far into it, but it is something of interest. Uh, I come from a, a tradition, for lack of a better term, uh, you know, a good 50-year-old tradition, <laughs> tra- tradition where it is a really, really important – this is very important to them. Uh, and that's something I've always taken issue with. It's not important to the same, in the same way or the same degree to me. The other
0: element of Papias that I at least thought should be mentioned, we get from Papias the tradition that the gospel of Mark is Peter's gospel – this is one. I, I believe this to be one of the main rationales given for including Mark as a legitimate source, a gospel source, because he seems to be a follower of Peter. That he might have that he might leave behind a record of the teaching that had been given to him orally is what pa- is what Eusebius says about. Um, it comes from Papius. Um, this is Papius fragment two. So. I just thought we should bring up this element. And what's interesting about Papias, he also mentions um, that he sort of, I, he learned, he says in uh, Papias 3, I carefully learned and have carefully recalled from the elders, for I have certified their truth. Uh, so what we get from Papias is another non-biblical source, but nevertheless, an early source, one who seems to have known John to corroborate what was written. So in sort, if we're looking at, you know why do we want to consider the gospels at least historically reliable and authoritative? Here is another extra biblical source that adds to the conversation and also legitimizes Mark as an as an you know a, a reasonable witness through Peter to the life of Jesus.
3: I, I thought that that part was really interesting because he if if I recall, it's, he essentially admits that like, hey we probably didn't write this down in chronological order perfectly, but it's just we wrote everything we could remember because it was all important, and I didn't leave anything out. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. This is like a cool admittance. And I think in New Testament, like, scholarship or just whenever you're doing like historical scholarship they I think they would call that like the criterion of embarrassment I think it would fit I mean I <laughs> I'm not am not a scholar but I I think it would I think it would fit the bill as you know this is something that it's like an embarrassing fact you're admitting so yeah, yeah I don't know I think though most people don't I I could be wrong I was reading up on this I think most people don't agree that this is
1: how the writing of Mark went down
3: but Regardless, yeah, there's I still a, thought this is interesting.
1: Yeah, contemporary scholarship diverges significantly from in certain ways about the formation of the the books of the Bible and the canon. Right. In fact, I would like to hit on one of the ways that contemporary scholarship diverges from from Papius, because in addition to saying that Mark was written by Peter, Papias also uh, makes sure to point out that Matthew was first. Uh, was the first gospel written, and he makes the point that Matthew was written originally in Hebrew and only translated into Greek later, which i find I find that very hard to believe for a number of reasons i mean i 'll just give one basic and that is that when you read Matthew, you get certain i can 't remember off the top of my head of an ex, of a, an ex, uh, exact example but you get phrases in Greek that are then explained by giving the Hebrew uh so it seems that the writer is writing in greek not uh, uh not the other way around but in any case Papius is going to be the source of uh the argument that matthew was originally written in hebrew that his was the first gospel whereas today contemporary scholarship believes that mark is the earliest gospel written
0: well i was going to give ben a chance i could i thought he was going to speak up here but well that was going to be my my
2: my insight yeah um, <laughs> yes. Oh, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's how it goes around the academic table, so to speak. You know?
1: Well, do you have anything to add on that? <laughs> no, no,
2: no. I, I just thought that was interesting, even the point that it was written in Hebrew and how plausible, I mean, I guess we can't know either way, but that's a plausible, interesting point to even make. Can
1: you think of an example from Matthew, a specific one of like a Hebraism where he takes a Greek phrase and
2: exple- uh, gives the Hebrew? Uh, Not... N- nothing from matthew comes to mind mark you have those instances of the aramaic kind of with a little girl i think that yeah Talitha Kumi. Uh, yeah, yeah yeah
0: yeah very good so i mean was there anything else that struck you from the uh from the papyrus fragments i just
1: thought of one in matthew eli eli lama sabachthani right yeah he clearly so he quotes it in aramaic there so not really Hebrew, but Aramaic,
0: and then explains what it means. So
1: anyway, sorry, Chad, what were you asking?
0: Oh, no, I just, um, well, I was just going to say, was there anything else from the Papias fragments, one that I had written down? Papias seems to be aware of some kind of fragments of the Lord's sayings and orderly composition of the Lord's sayings. So, you know, this is in contemporary scholarship on the Gospels and historical Jesus Studies They often talk about a cue source or a sayings source, and this is one of the evidences that that might have actually existed. Papias seems to think that there was something of this kind floating around.
1: And to kind of elucidate that for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, uh, the idea of a cue source or a saying source essentially is this, that some companion of Jesus or some student of a companion of Jesus wrote down the sayings – and then some later writer took those sayings and kind of composed them into the, the various gospels that we have now. That's the view, the notion of the source format or uh, source uh, creation of the gospels. There are two things, a couple things I would like to add on Papias. The first is actually kind of a kind of a uh, nodding of the head or a hat off to. Our our Catholic listeners, if we have any, I don't know that we do. But it is interesting that in the the tenth uh, chapter, the groups of sayings there, he makes this distinction between all of the Marys that that are supposedly mentioned in scripture. Oh yeah, and um, he does make mention of a Mary whose sons were James, Judas, and Joseph, uh, and who was an aunt of the Lord. And so you know, kind of. For those of our listeners who aren't aware, Catholics believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, which, since the Gospel refers to brothers and sisters of Jesus, that would make it unlikely or impossible. Catholics tend to have a couple of different reconciliations or explanations for how Jesus has brothers and sisters. One reconciliation is that they weren't brothers and sisters, they were cousins, and since the Hebrew doesn't have a word for cousins, they... Uh, use brother and sister to kind of make reference to that. This is, just shows that there is an early source for that. Now, Papias doesn't come out and say that Mary was a perpetual virgin, but when I read this, I go, oh, that's, I mean, it almost seems to be what he's implying, uh, if that actually does, or if that really can be accredited to him. The second thing I wanted to address, which I thought was interesting, is Papias gives a uh, an account of the death of Judas, And he says this. He says, Judas walked about in this world a sad example of impiety. For his body, having swollen to such an extent that he could not pass where a chariot could pass easily, he was crushed by the chariot so that his bowels gushed out. So there are a few things I think that are interesting here. Number one, it's clear that that, to me anyway, that that fragment uh, is um, referencing something that predates – uh, the acceptance of the Book of Acts as canon, and or or I'm not saying it predates the Book of Acts, but Acts was not widely read when that little uh, bit was written. It's also interesting that it reflects what the Book of Acts talks about, because the Book of Acts also accounts gives an account of Judas splitting open and his entrails coming out. But in those in that instance, he's in a field and he falls forward and is you know and is split open that way. Both of these accounts, of course. Uh, our intention with Matthew's account of G- Judas hanging himself. So you know it does create kind of the question of, of, I don't know which, you know where where do the sources come from? Uh, is there a way to reconcile them? You know all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, Ben. What we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but so when you see the different the different gospel accounts, the different narr- narration of events, um, you were saying something about I think it was a NT Wright uh, saying about what goes what's going on with the various gospels. Did you want to speak well, to that a little? Yeah, bit?
2: Yeah, he. Uh, I mean, this isn't my analogy at all, but NT Wright has. Um, he draws the, analog- the analogy between, uh, let's say you're watching a sporting event like the Cardinals game, and you know the Cards are playing the Cubs, and we have the scores, we have um, the runs that have been hit, who's done what, but we have two different news sources, being a, one in St. Louis and one in Chicago. They're going to take those facts and interpret them for meaning into them differently. So it's not exactly the same when you because you have some pretty big discrepancies between Matthew and Luke and how. Judas bit the dust so to speak but I think there's more Jewish motifs going on In Matthew of the, the washing Of blood from your hands And all that kind of stuff which is why Matthew Focuses on Judas hanging himself Versus the Lucan account of his stomach being split in two.
0: Yeah, well, and real quick, Luke, of course, wrote acts as far as we, mm-hmm. we It's often put together the Luke acts. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. why you're mentioning Luke in that account. And of course, Ben and I are from St. Louis. So it is eminently important that we talk about the Cardinals <laughs> yeah. versus the Cubs yes. at least some point.
1: Yes. And Trevor and I are from Boise, which means we're going to talk about Nothing, yeah, <laughs> actually we Broncos. we do have the Boise State Broncos, yes, <laughs> which matter to me i I would say they matter to me as much as the Cardinals do to Chad, but i I love the Broncos more than almost anything, but i I've never seen a bigger fan of a sports team than Chad is of the Cardinals.
2: <laughs> we could be getting away from Papius proper by doing this, but it raises interesting questions just involving what we were talking about the other day with what we mean when we say the gospels themselves are authoritative as historical documents Um, and new Testament scholarship is going to talk about that. I mean, we could talk about that for days and days. So it might not be where we want to go right now, but it might be an interesting thing to bring up sometime in the future in terms of when we say the gospels are testimony, well, are they eyewitness testimony? How, quote-unquote, what facts are they purporting and how should we read them as facts? Should we read them as theological motifs? That we, This is kind of where we can go down some rabbit trails if we want to. But I think it's connected to Papias.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I envision us addressing those kinds of things a lot over the course of this program. It's hard, though, because I, I do find myself thinking, well, we've got to get on to the next guy, and I'm wondering when the time is going to come when we can stop and say, let's explore this. Part of me is, you know, thinking about future theologians we'll be reading also, you know, thinking, well, that's going to really come up when we start looking. I mean, obviously, we are a long way from 19th century German higher criticism. (laughs) But but at the same time, there's a part of me which goes, well, we'll get that when we get to 19th century German.
0: I, you know, I do think... I'll spend a, just a quick second and reiterate that it is a question that comes up when we're reading the early documents. Why, you know, here's, here's some guy, a secondary source commenting on the reliability of the text. There's a biblical scholar called Richard Baucom who makes the argument that whenever Luke mentions a person by name, it's most likely someone he's asked about the events. So it gives some credence to the eyewitness and how helpful the idea of an eyewitness is to corroborate uh, or give warrant for the belief that the Gospels do give us an account of a historical Jesus and of a historical resurrection, of course, 1 Corinthians 15 as well. I'll, I'll leave it at that, but just to say that there are good reasons to think that the Gospels are reliable in terms of, of history about the Christ event. Well, I think just to add, to about since you brought up Luke,
1: I think Luke is especially interesting because of all the writers in the Bible, really, I mean, not just in the amongst the Gospel writers, Luke is the only one who gives some kind of an explanation of his method, right? I mean, he seems very concerned to point out uh, the reliability of his own narrative, you know, referencing the fact that he has talked to eyewitnesses, he's interviewed them, you know. Paul does a similar kind of thing in First Corinthians 15, but in that instance, he's not so much trying to establish the reliability of his letter as much as he's trying to establish the reliability of the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Trevor? (laughs) Agreed.